Hello, family. You know, just recently I met Laura Cathcott Robbins, and I think you're going to enjoy knowing her if you've not already heard about her or read her books yourselves. She's a best-selling author. Her memoir is called Stash, My Life in Hiding. She's also host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room. Laura shares transparently about her life, and she has a lot to teach. Please enjoy her and enjoy this conversation. It's so exciting to have you here. Welcome to Ask JVH. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about this conversation with you. Oh, I am too. There's so much in your life to share. Let's start by talking about Stash, My Life in Hiding. You've written a powerful memoir about your journey through addiction and divorce and First, let me tell you, it is beautifully written with heart-wrenching honesty. How did you decide to share your story and what's the message you want readers to receive? I decided to, to write Stash after kind of a long journey in sobriety. Uh, I think I was about 12 years sober when I wrote it. And the reason um, was when, sorry, <clears throat> sorry about that. Um, when I, when I was getting sober, uh, 15 years ago, there weren't any books written from that, the place where I was, which was the intersection of privilege and race and addiction. And I was really dismayed by that. And I, when I say race, I mean any race other than white. (laughs) If there were no books written by Asian women, no books written by Latino women, there was just everything that I found was written by white women that was written from that place of privilege regarding addiction and and relationships. And that was in 2008 when I was getting sober and I was looking for books like that. And then fast forward to 2020, 2020, 2020, 2020. And there, there was still that, that absence, that void um, in, in the world of books. And there's a new genre called Quitlit, Q-U-I-T-L-I-T. And it's a genre created to help people look at their relationship with drugs and alcohol. And it is entirely devoid of voices of color. So this was one of the reasons I decided to write my story because it comes from that intersection. And I've thought, you know, publishers aren't publishing these stories because they don't know they'll sell. So if I can do well with this book, there's hope for more like it. That's a lot of responsibility you put on yourself. And there was a lot of vulnerability required in that. What was the process of writing this book like for you? I mean, when did you first start it? You mentioned 2020 as such an important timeline. But did that book start before then for you in here? I mean, it's something that I've been thinking about for years, it's actually the thing I didn't want to write about. I didn't want to write Mm -hmm. about the year 2008 because the year 2008 was the hardest year of my life. And I wanted to write about something that was maybe more fun and less painful. But um, everybody that I had, I have um, several writing mentors and teachers. And every time I, I, aimed at another area of my life, they kept bringing me back to this year. This is the important year. This is the linchpin. This is the year you need to focus on. And so so I, I wrote about it, but I didn't know that that was the book I was going to sell. 
In the summer of 2020, HarperCollins posted on Instagram that they would take um, submissions, uh, a query, which is a pitch letter and 30 pages of, of your book um, from unagented Black authors. They would, they would uh, accept these submissions. During the summer of 2020, it was their answer to the cultural reckoning that was happening. And I didn't have 30 pages written and I didn't have a query letter, but I got to work. Uh, the, the, the due date, I think, was September 8th. And so mm -hmm. I found it, the post in June and I wrote and I sent it to my writer's group and I'm, I got notes and suggestions and I finally submitted it, I think, on September 7th, like right at the deadline. Mm -hmm. And I got an automatic response, as you do when you submit, that said, thank you for your fiction submission. No other genres will be considered. And my heart sunk because mine was memoir. It's autobiographical. It's my true story. Uh, a few months later, um, a friend of mine read those pages and the query, sent them to her agent. This was in November of 2020. The agent sent me a contract and said, how quickly can you write this? And so then for me, the clock started. I wrote it in six months after that. I turned in the finished manuscript in April of 2021. So it didn't take me very long to write, but it was always a part of the story that I had either avoided or um, shamefully thought about, uh, guiltily thought about, but didn't think I was going to write about. And you know, that's so important because when you think about 2020, a lot of people were discovering themselves differently during that time. Yes. Uh, we want to forget about COVID, but it's here to stay. During that time, we didn't really clearly have an idea about what it was or where we were with it. And a lot of people were dealing with their own self-discovery. Your writing often explores the themes of identity and self-discovery. How was that process for you? I'm talking about the process of self-discovery and how did it, how, how was your journey influenced and how did it move the stories that you share along for us? Well, I think my process of self-discovery really be began when I got sober. And I don't mean it just like I put down drugs and booze and all of a sudden I knew who I was. But in the 12-step program that I'm in, uh, there's a lot of self-examination that is required to move through all 12 steps. And there's also a lot of sharing of one story. That's not required. But if for me, the way that I entered the program, which was like, I just did everything that people told me to do, all the stuff I didn't want to do, I just did it because I was really desperate, mainly desperate to stay in my children's lives. That was, that was my fear was that if I didn't get sober, I wouldn't be able to be in their lives. So, you know, kind of it felt very urgent for me at the time to do whatever. And part of that included telling my story, which was, like I said, very shameful for me at that time to be an addict, an alcoholic and be a mom was mm -hmm. exactly the thing I didn't want to be. It was the people that I had judged before addiction came into my life and, and not judged like as a hobby, but I'd always thought, oh, if they only love themselves more, their children more, they wouldn't be in this position. And then mm -hmm. here I was in that position. Um, so I was, I was really like, I was willing to do whatever it took. Um, and 
because of that process, I ended up telling my story a lot. I speak at meetings a lot. I'm also the only one in the room a lot. There aren't very many black women in the, or black people period in the meetings that I, that are close to my house. Um, You know, within a five mile radius, I'm almost always the only one in the room. And sometimes there's two, you know, which is a party, (laughs) but, but most of the time it's just me. So there was this, um, I stood out in these meetings. So I, I think that I was asked to tell my story more often than other people who might have a similar story because I was the black woman in the room. And I won't say it was fetishizing. I don't, I don't think it was that, but it was different. And I think people sought that different perspective. So the process of healing and self-discovery began for me, you know, August 14th, 2008, when I got sober and continued on writing about it, you know, in the year 2020, I was able to do that because it didn't re-traumatize me. Had I started to write this in the year 2010 or 2011, it might, I might not have done enough work so that I wasn't re-traumatized writing about it, but I had enough distance. And like I said, self-examination to, to be completely vulnerable and, and real and honest about what my journey looked like. And, you know, I'm so glad you are real and honest. I mean, you've been transparent about your whole journey, whether it's about your education or the things that really got you to the place that you had to uh, come from. Many people think that addiction just kind of hits you. Yeah. But I had someone once tell me that addiction is is really harsh and it can slip up on you. Um, I'm I'm really interested to learn from you uh, the strategies that you use to overcome those challenges and maintain resilience throughout mm-hmm. your journey. Because again, as we said earlier, uh, Laura, there are a lot of people who started to first face their challenges and to start to do this self-progression during COVID. Yeah. But this is something that's been with us forever as humans. How do you maintain resilience and what are the strategies you're using? I think when I was little and growing up, the strategies were different. And I I bring that up because I think those coping mechanisms that I used um, when my stepfather came into my life, for instance, at age five, he was he was very emotionally abusive toward me. And the coping strategies I used to live in my house, to be okay in my skin while I was at home were very important but I think they separated me from my authentic self. I actually, I don't think that I know that the way that I was authentically rubbed him the wrong way. I was Mm -hmm. curious. I was energetic. I was what they would call a spirited child. Now. Um, then they just said, well, somebody put her to bed, please. (laughs) Like she's all over the place. (laughs) And, um, and he, you know, he just, he let me know in no uncertain terms that that was not acceptable in the house where he was the head of the household. So I Mm -hmm. altered who I was at home. Eventually I altered who I was at school. I was, I was the only black kid in my school for a really long time. And the only black kid in my class always when I was growing up in Cambridge, Mass. And that wasn't bad actually, but I still couldn't, you know, there's code switching involved when 
and, and not for everybody. I lived in a black neighborhood. I went to a white school. I wasn't the same in my neighborhood as I was at school. And, and it didn't seem to come at a cost to me at that time. But what, what happened was, you know, as I grew up, as I entered high school, a public high school for the first time after being in this very small independent school, I was lost. I got bad grades. I, I started missing classes because I was ashamed to show up without my homework. And I lied about having my homework done. And I lied to my parents and I thought I would be able to keep up or catch up at some point and I never could. So there's more of a departure from who I really was into who I pretended to be. And that continued on. I, I dropped out of high school. I didn't go to college. Um, and I think that all of that, you know, who I presented myself as, as an adult was very different than the person who I was authentically. And not to say that it was a complete departure. You know, I wake up happy. I always have. You know, mm -hmm. I love all the same things that I loved when I was little. I love reading. I love TV. I love, I love writing. I, I, I love biking. Like, those things are authentic to me, and I still love them. I'm a warm person. I'm very affectionate. That hasn't changed. But there are ways that I present myself that have. And so when I got sober... Um, I'm sorry, not when I got sober, when I became addicted to um, Ambien, which is the drug that I became addicted to, it was such a relief at first, not to be addicted, but to have something that felt like it bridged those two selves, where I didn't have to pretend for how, however many hours the pill worked inside me, where I felt at ease, where I didn't have to remember what story I had told. And that was really helpful. It was a helpful coping mechanism at first. And then you're right. It was like that Hemingway bankruptcy quote. You know, how did you go bankrupt gradually and then suddenly? For me, mm -hmm. the addiction was very gradual. And then suddenly it was all I could do was to stay loaded so that I didn't go into excruciating withdrawal. And Laura, what role has forgiveness played in your healing process? I mean... How do you approach forgiveness in the face of past traumas you've experienced? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's also part of the 12-step program that I'm in. Um, we, we look at resentments. Uh, one of the resentments that surprised me the most, the one that surprised me the least was at my stepfather. I understood exactly why I was resentful toward him, and that was pages and pages of writing for me. The resentment mm -hmm. that surprised me the most was the one against myself, that mm -hmm. I resented myself for some of the things that I did, for a lot of the things that I did, for the path that I took, for the choices I had made. And so forgiving him was actually easier for me posthumously because he passed away when my younger son was born 23 years ago. Um, but I did end up forgiving him, I think. This is always difficult for me because I haven't had a conversation with him. I don't know what would have come up if he were still alive and he and I talked. I might still have a resentment, but the way it feels now, I don't. But the resentment against myself, that, was, that wasn't as easy to let go of. It wasn't forgiveness. Forgiveness didn't come. It was, it, was a, it was less accessible for me because it didn't kind of make sense that I needed to forgive myself. Like I didn't, I couldn't really wrap my head around that. I'm like, I don't hold myself accountable. I'm fine. And I kept kind of poo-pooing it and putting it off. And 
the woman that leads me through this work, um, who we, we call a sponsor, she really kept directing me back toward that because she felt like I was kind of holding myself hostage in a way and by not forgiving myself. And that, when I started to do it to your, answer your question, that work was a real, real honest look at the fact that I have, you know, one, I had this trauma in my childhood that was not my fault. There was an adult who inflicted this trauma upon me. And as a child, I didn't, I was powerless. And the choices I made were just to survive. It was just survival. And for me as an adult, addiction felt like survival in the exact same way. Mm -hmm. So if my head, my mind is telling me this is for to survive, I'm going to do whatever I can instinctually. And that's how I was able to look at that and then forgive myself for doing what I needed to do in my head to survive. Yeah. 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 And forgiveness is forgiveness lies at the bottom of so many people's pools of tears. I think the fear of diving in is what keeps people from their own wellness. When we think about mental health, it's a topical subject today and has gained a lot of attention with celebrities from very careers sharing their own struggles and journeys. In some ways, I think this has helped the whole subject and existence of mental uh, health to lose some of the stigmatism of the past. Mm -hmm. But Laura is still a delicate subject, isn't it? How do you encourage open conversations about mental health? And so many people, regardless of what they're dealing with, whether it is uh, identity or it's financial status or mental health, are a little shy to talk about it and you don't want to out someone Mm -hmm. before they're ready to. So how do you... How do you manage that? How do you encourage open conversation without forcing someone to feel outed about their mental state? Yeah, I mean, I I just I just talk about my own experience with it, and you know, sometimes that it that opens the door and people feel safe to share their own experiences. I I'm I'm very careful or very mindful of projecting my experience on other people. You know, I will see symptoms that look to me like the symptoms that I experienced when I was dealing with my own crises. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's difficult not to jump in and say, Hey, I know what that is. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're having a breakdown of some sorts, or you're Mm -hmm. not addressing your depression, or you're not looking at your anxiety through the lens of something that you don't have to fix necessarily with just medication. There are other ways to, to do this. And so I don't do that. I don't, I don't jump in and and tell people, but you know, I, back to privilege for me, um, when talking about mental health issues, I'm always very aware of the, the vantage point from in which I sit because I, um, I'm able, I have access to medical care. Um, I've always had access to medical care. Um, mm-hmm. ah, there was a period, we were pretty poor when I was little. So, but I, I still did, um, somehow I'm sure that something was sacrificed so that I could be at the doctor that they wanted to go take me to. But 
Um, and, and I, I have language around it. I've been educated about it. Um, at this point in my life, I'm not ashamed of it. And that when I first started looking at this, I was very ashamed of admitting anything that was, could be seen as, um, a defect. You know, I, I wrote an article about this not too long ago about feeling like I had postpartum anxiety after my right. second son was born, not mm -hmm. having the language to because I, I, I wasn't depressed. I wasn't listening. That was so important. Yes. Yeah. That you wrote that. That was so important. Oh, thank thank you. you for that. Thank you. But it was, it was, you know, nothing in society told me that I should come forward with this. Everything said, just wait and you'll get over it. You know, don't, don't say anything yet because other moms are not, are not having this problem. That's the way it looked to me. Or are you a good mom or, if yes. you're having this problem? Yes. Thank mm -hmm. you. Which is a mm -hmm. really big deal, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, gosh, you know, everyone gets judged. But I think moms most of all get judged for how they parent and, and, and how they look while they're parenting, too. And how they come up in so many sessions when people are dealing with their own mental health and their issues. Moms are big plays in that. That part right uh there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, 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 Laura, let's go a little bit deeper into mm -hmm. this, though, because the concept of being alone in a room full of people resonates with a lot of people. And you speak, uh, I think, proudly and loudly to this in a good way. How do you think people can turn this feeling of isolation into a source of strength and connection for themselves? Oh boy. You know, um, big one, right? Yeah, it's a really big one. The, the thing is, so I'll, I'll just put myself in the dominant culture for a minute. Um, like at, at my kids' school, when they were, um, in grade school, I was on a committee that, that looked at diversity, inclusion, and equity at the school. And the reason I joined that committee is because I wanted more black kids in the school, honestly, like that mm -hmm. was the bottom line. And I wanted to ensure that my children had black classmates. But what it ended up happening, and I'm actually still on this committee, my kids are grown, but looking at all these different inequities, right? So the way I would sit there and listen would have to be at times as a person of the dominant culture, the person that could afford tuition, that could afford whatever lunch price was being offered for our, for our kids' school lunches. I, I didn't have to, that wasn't a struggle for me. So I became a member of the dominant culture. If mm -hmm. a person could not afford the school lunch, a parent could not afford the school lunch, it's not up to them to come in and say, this is too much money. It's up to me as a member of the dominant culture to spot that and to raise the consciousness of the people around us in the dominant culture. Same thing for being black. If I am the only black person in the room, it's not up to me to call out that difference and affect that change. It is up to the people of the dominant culture. And so well, the only yeah. one. It, yeah, go ahead. 
because you're probably going to speak to this, but I want to make sure we're dynamic on it. The only one in the room has truly created a platform for marginalized voices. How do you see this platform evolving to further amplify these voices and then drive the positive change that you are a beautiful advocate for? Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. So our, our podcast is called The Only One in the Room. It's based on an experience I had where I went to a writer's retreat. I was the only black person out of 600 people. And Janice, I was looking in the kitchen. I was looking at the housekeepers. Like I was searching for another black person for three days. And I I was the only one there. Um, so this podcast um, came about after I wrote an article about that that went viral. It was actually my first article that was published and it went viral. And the responses I got weren't just from black people, but they were from people of all ethnicities, all walks of life, all ages, disabilities, abilities, who at one time or another had felt alone in a room full of people. They identified mm -hmm. and it blew my mind that there were these people who connected with my story of being the only black woman who weren't black you know, who had, you know, were of the dominant culture race wise, but connected because they understood the feelings. So those are mm -hmm. the stories we decided to share mm -hmm. on our podcast. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's ever felt alone in a room full of people has a story to share on the only one in the room. And the hope is that when somebody, you know, if they're white and blonde and 30s and, and middle class or well off, they can now connect with by hearing a story told by someone from their same circumstances who looks like them, they can hear this person talk about their journey with infertility or their journey with, uh, you know, um, caring for a, a loved one or all these things that separate people and isolate them, like you said, and then have compassion for people like me, black people who are the only person in the room. They start to look at the world differently because they understand what that only oneness is like. And it is isolating. It does affect mental health. It is, um, you know, unless one can, can uh, what's the word I want to like, not transform, but to use this, like I'm doing as a platform, it's just straight isolating. You know, I've built it, a brand it, around it because, because I want to keep calling this out. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm really excited for you. I don't know that it's on your agenda. I'm really excited for you to bring into your room, your podcast, uh, those who can speak, especially African-Americans, but any, anyone, you know, blacks, anyone, uh, in this instance, I'm giving you the, uh, the thought that I've been the only one in the room sometimes when I'm speaking to a room of people who are aspiring to achieve certain levels of success. And I'm not the only black person in the room. We may all be black people in the room, but I'm the only one in the room who's had a journey that I'm sharing with them in a way to help guide them from my successes and my failures. And that requires vulnerability. I mean, huge vulnerability. As a matter of fact, vulnerability is a central theme in the work you do, Laura. How do you encourage guests and your audience to embrace vulnerability and share their authentic stories? Again, understanding it's not always about being the only Black one in the room. Yes. It can sometimes be the only Black one who did this or the only person 
who identifies as she who did that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a really big one. Um, thank you for asking that too. We, so at the beginning of the podcast, I went after people, um, like just, I, I was a dog with a bone when I wanted somebody on the show, (laughs) I was relentless. I found them, you know, on the news or on social media, or I read a story about them. I didn't know them, but I would go after them because they had a really unique story that I thought would be great shared on our podcast. Now we have, um, you know, since probably the second year, we just have submissions and we have so many submissions. So I go through them um, looking for two things. I look for a great story that is vulnerable, but it can also be like, it can be something really cool too. You know, mm-hmm. like someone had a really unique, cool experience. Like I, I interviewed this one woman, you'll appreciate this. You might even know her. I can't remember her name now, but she mm-hmm. um, is part of an all black female diving team and they are mm-hmm. diving through um, slave ship wreckage. Yes. Yeah. And what a cool thing, right? Uh-huh, and uh-huh. so I I saw her on Good Morning America, DM'd her, and she she got me connected with her team, and she came on the show to talk about this incredible experience. And she's not isolated by it, you know. She's enjoying it. She's all in, but it's still an only one in the room experience. So it doesn't have to be tragic. It doesn't have to be isolating. It doesn't have to be. You still have to be vulnerable, but. It can be in a completely different way. But usually um, the other thing I do, which uh, I don't, I think you do as well, but I don't think we, we did it. Um, but I usually do a pre-interview. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's just a sound check to see mm-hmm. how people sound. But most of the time, if it's somebody I haven't heard speak, I've just read about, um, I haven't heard them tell their story. I'm going to get on a, a Zoom with them for 15 minutes and put them at ease and see how I can guide them because sometimes I can't guide people. And so that interview is not going to work out. I can It can only work if I can kind of steer the conversation mm-hmm. in the direction of this mm-hmm. only one story because it's very specific. I can't just have anybody come on and tell me about their lives. They have to talk about how they're the only one in the room. So it's different than a lot of podcasts. And um, and and once that's established, and I, I know that you know this as well, then we don't have that awkward 15 minutes at the top of the interview where we're getting to know each other, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what the audience here is, the listening audience and the viewing audience sees is two people that have already established a rapport that have agreed upon a subject matter and we're just diving into it. We're going to get right into the story and get you this story because it's so fantastic or so incredible or so important. And even then, it still requires a level of vulnerability because yes. you're going live and yes. in, an, in an age where you can so easily be canceled and you consider it an accidental slip, but it can read differently for someone else. I think it requires a lot of uh, bravery for people mm. Uh to be able to put themselves out that way. And that's not just about speaking. That's sometimes just about walking into that room for whatever you're going to do. You know, Laura, um, we can't have this conversation with talking without talking about shame either. Mm -hmm. Shame is a powerful force that holds far too many people back. Um, How can 
people shed the weight of shame mm. and find courage to embrace their authentic selves. You are a beautiful example. And when someone listens to you, they don't hear a woman who's not educated in a formal academic environment. Mm. When someone sees you, they don't see a woman who may have had her only thoughts or misgivings about being the only one in a room uh, physically. Uh, all they see is a totally together, fabulous chick whose life they probably like to have, not knowing what's led up to where you are, nor what may be happening now or what you may be going through to get further to, you know, to what your goal is. So, so, so shame ties people down and it, 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 it's a, it's a horrible inhibitor, I think, to freeing oneself to be vulnerable. And the other thing that we talked about to being the only one in that room with confidence. Yeah. I mean, being the only one is a prize. Oftentimes you win awards to be the only one, right? Yeah. The only one. <laughs> Who, who hit the biggest score, the only yes. one who went the, here or there. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. Talk about shame. I, um, you know, I think that ever since I was five years old, um, shame has been my biggest fear, my constant companion. It was always there lurking in the corner waiting for me to do something wrong. I'm putting that in air quotes for anyone who's just listening mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, or to be different, you know, mm -hmm. from my peers somehow. Um, that was shameful to me. I want it to blend in. I want it to be the same. I wanted to play with the same toys. I wanted to live in the same types of houses. You know, everything that was different felt shameful to me. Yeah. And I'm not really sure how I dealt with it then other than pretending to be something that I wasn't. Um, but that didn't really deal with it. That just masked it and, and put a, a, a lid on top of it. But the pot was still and, boiling. And Laura, yeah. let's, let, let's, let, let me interject yeah. and take a pause in there because you said something about, you know, being someone you weren't, yes. you aren't, yes. being something you weren't. Um, many of us, especially I think, uh, professional black people are highly familiar with the term day face where we yes. put on our day face. Yes. And that's not always that we are being someone we're not. That's adapting who we are to that environment yes. for acceptability, whether it's about a promotion. Many, I, I, I know many African-Americans and you would know them uh, by name. I know um, many uh, Asian-Americans who speak a certain way in the office and mm -hmm. speak completely differently at home. Yeah. That's not faking or not being who you are in the mindset. It's when in Rome, yeah. you know, or yeah. if you're going to advance, then you've got to adapt because we ages ago, there was this, this, this conversation and you may, well, yeah, you may be familiar with it. Lord. You're familiar with the argument around whether or not we integrated or whether, you know, or, or, yeah. or, or whether we just kind of jumped in a pool. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the day face became really big for people who were the first or the only ones yes. in an environment. Yes. And that's different 
than not being who you are. So lean in on that a little mm-hmm. bit as you walk us through shame, please. Yeah, I you're absolutely right. And and that goes back to who I was in my neighborhood, which was a black middle class neighborhood. I I thought all um black neighborhoods were middle class until <laughs> I left um Cambridge and saw some other ones and I was like, "Wow." But living in that neighborhood and then going to the white school, I absolutely code switched. I I just wasn't exactly the same. I think the shame pieces, and this is is what I was getting while you were talking, is I wasn't willing to show my white friends the black side of me. And I wasn't willing to show my black friends the white side of me. Right. And that was the shame separation. If I had just been open, like, I'm going to talk like this here. I mean, not, I don't have to announce it, but just... Like if my white friends had caught me talking black, right, mm-hmm. and not been ashamed of that. I don't remember if that ever happened, but I know that I, I, I really wanted to keep the two separate, mm-hmm. that, that this was not acceptable here. This was not acceptable there. Certainly, I got accused of talking white in my black neighborhood, and that felt shameful to me. I didn't want to be accused of talking white. I wasn't trying to be white. I was just talking like I did at school. And, you know, and then, you know, to be accused of talking black, I'm sure that came up a little bit later for me is when I remember it. But the 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 being a different place, a different way in different environments is normal. It's average to the population, regardless of color. Right. But being ashamed of that was my thing. This this was the layer that was added to mine, which, you know, it's a thousand would have, could have, should have. But had mm-hmm. I learned that lesson younger, it wouldn't have evolved, I think, the way that it did. So that every time, you know, I I was different regarding being the only one in the room for sure, but just having a different experience in the same room. You know, my education was a really big deal. I, I came to mm-hmm. Los Angeles in 1988 and wanted to direct commercials. That's why I moved here. Um, Worked for a commercial director, found out that there weren't any female commercial directors, let alone black ones. There was one. Her name was Paula Walker. I don't know if she's still directing. But I remember that because, you know, back then I researched the way that one can research was at the library. Shout out to Miss Paula. (laughs) Shout out to Miss Paula. But um, yeah, so I, I moved here to do that, lied about my education to get that job. Uh, started writing press releases for my friend Donna Atkins. She's Sinbad's sister, and she mm-hmm. was doing his publicity. And so I started helping her with her press releases because I can write. I've just always been able to write. And that led me to a job as an associate at a PR firm, lied to get that job. And my my rash, I, I would rationalize it and justify it and minimize the lying um, because I figured I'm qualified. It's just a piece of paper. They're looking for a degree, mm-hmm. which I don't have. It's so much more than that. But this is how I, I justified it to myself. Um, and I would have, been, man, I would have left town if anybody found out. I'm serious. Not only would I have left mm-hmm. the job, but I would have had to go somewhere else entirely because that was an incredibly deep source of shame. I didn't come out about my lack of education until I got sober at age 43. So 44. 
43. Well, thank God no one ever found out before you were ready to come out. Yeah. Because the people world would have missed a lot. People got close. Uh, yeah, we so would have missed so No, much. go ahead. I said, we would have missed so much. Yes. So much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying that. That's so true. My journey would have been different. Yeah. Talking about your journey and looking ahead, what are your aspirations for the only one in the room and your broader advocacy for authenticity and inclusivity? Well, you know, if we're being honest, and I think we, we are, are. <laughs> I'm tired of advocating. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like I've been doing it. Like I remember when my, my son was in kindergarten or maybe it was preschool and um, a woman who was of Chinese descent celebrated Chinese New Year in the classroom for all the kids. And I was like, oh, Black History Month is next month. I wonder who's going to be celebrating Black History Month. And then I realized it had to be me because I was the mm. only Black parent. And I remember the weight of that moment that yes, I'm going to do it because I'm not going to let my child not be represented in his classroom, but I don't want to be the only one doing it. I'm tired. Mm. And then I was the only black person, the only black parent association president, the first one since 1972. I was the only black member of the board at their school for years. And now, now there are many more, but you know, that, that only oneness is such a burden and the exhaustion that is the impact on my mental health. And goes back to what you were saying earlier about is the onus on you to speak up and say, how are we treating this? Or should the majority population yes. ask, how can we include this? When my children were in school, they attended uh, a primarily white school as well with spatterings of uh, diversity. Um, and I remember asking the same question, Laura, how are we celebrating uh, Black History Month? And they said, well, we're open. What are you, what are you thinking? Right. And so my first impulse, I won't share with you, but what I actually did was bought a book of encyclopedias, mm -hmm. uh, in, encyclopedia about African-Americans nice. and Blacks and gave it to the library, gifted it to the library. It, the books were so popular and were in the head. The school came back and asked me, well, can you get us another set? Wow. And I thought, no, this isn't right. My first impulse was to help correct a circumstance and put content into the library, yes. into the academic uh, program. My second thought when the same thing to me was, what are you going to do about mm -hmm. it? The books are being checked out. We don't have enough was, by the way, it's a private school, right. a very expensive private school. My thought was, buy the books. Buy the books. Yeah. Buy the books. And so from there, I became a strong advocate for buying books from all people. But yeah, you're right. Um, I thought that was a success, mm -hmm. but it really was just the first step toward success. Yeah. One thing I ask most of my guests, and I must ask you this before we go four for four, how do you define success, Laura? Um, success. 
So I have a very uh, much different definition of success at this point in my life. At age, I just turned 59, was it yesterday? Two days ago. So at this point in my life, what looks like success to me is much different than it looked like at 29. Um, at 29, my ambitions were... Um, Even though you still look like you did at 29. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you for that. I... I wanted, you know, at one point, success looked like the big house, mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the nice cars. Uh, for me, it looked like private jets. It looked like, uh, you know, being invited to award ceremonies where awards were bestowed upon you or you were nominated. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It looked like having a life of relative leisure, meaning that I didn't have to work hard for my domestic life. That meant mm -hmm. housekeepers, that meant nannies, that meant, so these mm -hmm. are the, the trappings of success that I wanted and I, and I got. And then I got addicted and I was addicted for several years and everything flipped. So when I was first getting sober, my definition of success was being able to stay in my children's lives, regardless of where I lived, regardless of how much money I had in the bank, regardless of what kind of car I drove. I just wanted to be their mom. Mm -hmm. And now I'm at a point in my life, and I have been for years, where I am in a relationship with a man. I've been with, in a relationship with him for 15 years. We're not married, but it's good. It's very good. And my kids are grown and we have a, an, an, an incredible relationship. They're one's here right now, but they're here all the time. And, you know, they're out of the house, but we're very close. So that is successful right, to right. me. You know, I have a successful relationship. That's joy. That's it joy. is joy. It is bliss. Yes. It is mm -hmm. bliss. And I feel because of the honesty that I've developed, I'm not fearful um, as I go through my day anymore, I'm not fearful of a question you might ask me that might expose some area of my life that I still feel ashamed about. I don't have those anymore. I honestly don't. Mm -hmm. I've, I've exposed, if you read my book, Stash My Life in Hiding, you know, you know, everything, right. everything is right. in there. And so does a lot of the world now, because I wrote this all in the book. So I'm not worried mm -hmm. about, you know, running to somebody in the grocery store who I need to avoid. I don't have red in my ledger anymore. I don't mm -hmm. owe anybody anything, mm -hmm. um, including financially, which also feels really mm -hmm. good. I, you know, I don't know how, if I would define myself as successful, if I were um, worried about money, I don't know if that would be the case, but right now I'm not. Sometimes that's a state of mm -hmm. mind. Sometimes it's a state of bank account and it just depends yeah. on the day, you know, but life is iterative. Yes. Yes. But mm -hmm. I, I feel like success is being secure, joyful, like you said, um, healthy. You know, my mm -hmm. health is extremely important to me. It's a priority. I, I do a lot of things to take care of my body, and which also helps with my mental health. So it's, there's the physical health, the mental health that's addressed by meditation, by working out, by you know, making sure that I have fun, that I, I devote time to doing the things that I like to do throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, loving and being loved is, is successful to me. 
loving and being well. Yes. I love, love, love that. Hashtag that. Yes. Okay. Hashtag that. Uh, let's go four for four. Okay. Okay. Going to ask you four questions. You'll give me four answers to each of them. They're your answers. So none of them are wrong. They're all right. Okay. Um, first question. Laura, you're hosting a dinner. Your guests can be any four people from any time from history to present. Who's at your table and why? Let's see. My grandmother, Ruth, uh, she was a an acclaimed classical pianist who died when I was eight years old in a car crash at age 46. She adored me. I didn't get to know her. You know, I don't have those memories of her that I'd like, so she would definitely be at the table. Um, have you ever been hypnotized? Uh, I mean, somebody tried. I don't know if I really was. I felt like I was not hypnotized. But how old? How old were you, if you don't mind me oh, asking you? Fifty, fifty-one, maybe. Okay. I might have been All very right. skeptical. I might have been. Yeah, I was very yeah, skeptical. Yeah. So I probably blocked mm -hmm. out some of what would allow Less vulnerable. Me. Yes. Less vulnerable to it. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, but so, yeah, my, my grandmother, Ruth, um, who else? Who else? Um, you know, maybe Maya Angelou. Just love mm -hmm. her. I, I, I found her works, her writing later on in life. It was kind of forced upon me as a little, you know, as a younger person to read. I think I read I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings in in high school, but didn't love it then and have found this love for her works and and who she was and what how she represented herself in the world. The unapologeticness of it. Uh, oh, my goodness. That's an aspiration for me. Um, so those two, those are two women. Both, yeah. Uh, she and Nina Simone mm. are two women who I came to love. Yeah. Who had to learn to love, yes. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to think if there's any men that I would want to have. Maybe because they were deeper than I was at the time I yes. started to meet them. I think more work. evolved. Yeah. Than I yeah. was at the time, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. um, both of those women, Nina Simone and Maya mm -hmm. Angelou. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I love... Who are the other two people at dinner? Who are the other two Michelle people? Michelle Obama. Uh -huh. I, I admire her. Um, maybe for the wrong reasons. I don't know. But I just do. Because I don't know that much about her. But I like mm -hmm. what I've seen so far. And mm -hmm. I, I love how she speaks when she speaks in public. I love the passion of it. I think she'd be really interesting to get to know. Um, mm -hmm. And then maybe, maybe the last one would be Mae Jameson. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I'm the worst at math, the absolute worst. I don't know that world <laughs> at all, the STEM world. And to meet a black woman who was a pioneer in that world would be really cool. And to hear what her life looked like from that perspective. Laura, you may be the first guest at Ask JBH who has invited only black women to her table. Oh my God, I did, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody's going to be the only one That's at right. your table. That's right. Isn't that funny? But these are the women that I yeah. genuinely admire. They were the first yeah. that came to mind. So, 
And had I asked you this question 20 years ago, yeah. none of them may have been there. No, you know? maybe my grandma. So not even, but, right, yeah. right, just grandma, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, for music, uh, let's do music. For artists you're listening to or pieces of music you're listening to right now and why? I'm listening to the Motown, um, the musical soundtrack, which oh, I thank love. You. <laughs> I just listened thank to that. Thank you. This I'm going to let my friend Carol know she was active in that. Really? Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. I saw it like three times, and the musical's on repeat. I work out to it. So I just listened mm-hmm. to it this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I love Olivia Rodrigo. Rodrigo. Olivia yeah. Rodrigo. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think she's uh-huh. fabulous and I love all her breakup songs. <laughs> They're like angry <laughs> enough that you can like really get into them. Um, she has a great voice. I love Doja Cat. I love mm-hmm. her. She's one of my mm-hmm. favorites. So I she's she's on my playlist. And um, Stevie Wonder, he is the soundtrack of my childhood and it never gets old. I play it all the time. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Wow. Thank you. Uh, what four books do you recommend our family read and why? Well, um, You Could Make This Place Beautiful by Maggie Smith, the poet, not the actress. Mm-hmm. I read that book and I was stunned. I stretched it over two days, but mm-hmm. I could have finished it in one sitting. And it's the first book that's had me like that in a while. I, I, it's, it's about divorce. There were a lot of commonalities, but this woman is a poet and it's, the book is not a poetry book, but it's poetry. Like it's poetry Mm -hmm. to read it. It just feels like sliding into a warm bath. It's so good. Um, the other, let's see, three books, BFF by Christy Tate, which came out, Mm -hmm. um, February of 2023. It is a book about female friendships in a way that I've never seen. I think it should require reading for every young woman coming up, like starting middle school, maybe to see, to read about the dynamics of female friendships and, and how you can participate without self-harming in the, and then, and to appreciate them in a way that maybe you wouldn't um, without reading this book. So it's called BFF and it's by Christy Tate. I'm looking at my um, my bookshelf now. Big Magic by Elizabeth Elizabeth Gilbert is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I usually keep it right on my desk. It's not right now, but I flip through it when I need inspiration when I write because I'm a writer. That's basically what I do. I'm also a podcaster, but most of my day is spent writing. And I flip through this book and draw inspiration from it. It's called Big Magic, and it's about the creative process. Um, and the last one is The Alchemist and. I love that book. I have a long history with it. It's a book that is still, I don't know if you remember this, but like in the seventies, the print in books was so small. I don't know how we read them (laughs) back then, (laughs) but I have mine from the seventies and my original copy. And I still read it, even though the print is really small because it's so precious to me. It's so, it's so refreshing to hear someone speak just, uh, no coaching in this at all about turning pages in books. I mean, listen, with my travel schedule, trust me, my Kindle is active. It's full. It's busy. But I love books. And anytime I enjoy a book on Kindle, 
I'm going to make sure that I buy it in hardback. Excellent. So I, I, we, we're going to have to get together. Yeah. You're, you're in, LA. we're going to have to get together. Um, let's go four for four. Okay. All right. Please tell us what four pieces of advice you offer the family and why. And if it's advice that was giving you, Laura, then you pay homage to the author and tell us who gave you that advice or where from it comes. Uh, my children went to Jewish preschool. Um, mm-hmm. My my ex-husband is Jewish. And the rabbi came to visit the first day and he said to me, he probably said it to more than just me, but I just remember him saying it to me. Children value the most what you give them the most of. So mm-hmm. if it is material mm-hmm. things, that is what they'll value the most. If it is love and attention, that is what they'll value the most. And that just struck mm-hmm. me so much. And mm-hmm. I vowed to give my children you know, what I was going to give them, but mostly love at that point. Like this was the, mm-hmm. the priority, the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from me. This is something that I learned on my journey, which is always choose the possibility of happiness. Always yeah. choose the possibility of happiness. Yeah. A lot of people need that right now. Yes. They need yes. to have that on the mirror yes. right now. It's a hard choice. Um, And this goes to the next one, which was um, given to me by this woman named Bird. Uh, Faith isn't jumping from A to B. Faith is just jumping from A. And that gave me chills when she told me. Her name is Bird? Her name is Bird. Yes. No last name. Oh. Oh, And so this is, you know, me in my marriage wondering what if I leave, you know, choose the possibility of happiness, but where am I going to land? What is that going to look like? It was unknown. Mm-hmm. And because of my faith, I jumped from A. I knew it was the right thing to do. I was just scared to do it. Wow. So that was, yeah, that piece. Say of, it again. Say it so again faith for us, isn't please. jumping from point A to point B. Faith is just jumping from A. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And um, the last piece of advice was given to me by my father, who's one of the people visiting me right now. When my son was born, he told me, look, you're going to want to smother him, smother him, baby him, keep him safe from everything. He goes, and, you know, his dad is going to want to roughhouse with him, expose him to things that might you, you might think are dangerous, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, you know, play a little rough with him sometimes. Mm-hmm. He's like, you do your job, which is to do all that stuff that you want to do instinctually. Baby him, smother him with love, keep him safe because dad's going to do his job and he's going to have both of those things. He's going to know how to be out in the world and he's going to know he's safe because of the yin and the yang of that, right? The, the, the way that- Back to what the rabbi said. Yes. What he gets the most of. The most of. Right? So- I let my, I let their dad do his rough and tumble with them and I didn't interfere. And, you know, I, even though I wanted to, (laughs) and I did my thing, you know, my kids, when they cried, they knew right where to come and they would get the love that they hoped for and expected. And and I feel like they needed at that time. So those are the four pieces of advice. Oh, Laura, Laura, Laura. 
this has just been such an incredible conversation and a joy moment in my life. Thank you for sharing with us and keep writing. Thank you. Keep writing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great. Mm, From my heart to your home, gratitude.